Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to tonight's talk is Philosophy and Fear. And the subtitle is that the man who knows himself knows no fear. So the first question that we need to face is, how does fear arise? And fear only arises when there is another. So if you take the following example, imagine that you're asleep in bed at night and you wake up to find this hand crawling up your body and it's moving in a menacing sort of way towards your throat and suddenly you realize it's your own hand. (laughs) Now, when you thought it was the hand of another, you are full of fear. When it is your own hand, there is no fear. And there is no fear when there is no other. And where one loves thy neighbor as thyself, there is no fear. Love always conquers fear. If you take, for example, a mother who, walking down the street on her own, comes across a savage dog, she will be full of fear and, let's say, runs away. If she's with her young child and she meets the same dog, she will stand between the dog and the child because love conquers fear. But how do we create another? And how we create others is by creating me, a separate identity. If there is no me, there is no other. And the example of this is in sleep. When you go to sleep, the whole world disappears. Therefore, me comes first and all others follow. And this is also evidence when you wake up, suddenly you're surrounded by others again. So me is the sole source of fear. Therefore, all fear originates internally and not externally. And this is very important to note because all fear is eliminated from within. There is no thing that can cause fear. There is no thing to be afraid of. But a fearful person is afraid of everything. Now, who is this me who is the source of others and therefore the source of fear? This me is the ego, the false self, a pygmy of my real self, full of doubt, fear, limitation and isolation. And what is this me made of? And basically, me is made of three ideas. And these are ideas which exist only in the mind. So just remember that. Who I think I am is made up of three ideas which exist only in my mind. And these three ideas are I am, I know, and I do. And what follows, because the ego is perverse, is that I am not, I don't know, and I cannot. And thus is born the fearful person, full of limitations. Now this me, this ego, demands a full identity. So every role that I play is filled out with many requirements. 
So whatever I think I am, whether it be man, woman, doctor, nurse, whatever, it makes no difference. The role has to be filled out with many requirements, such as how to present myself, how to give of myself, how to speak, how to act, how I should respond and how I should feel, what I should be capable of, what I should value, how others should treat me, how they should value me. And it's all so complicated and it's all so full of tensions and fear. So we briefly look at some aspects or characteristics of this ego. And the first aspect or characteristic of the ego is that it's limited. And because it's limited, it's insecure. Therefore, it feels unable to cope with everything. Therefore, it experiences fear. This personal entity or ego is also isolated. It's separated from others. And all separation produces anxiety and fear. It produces the fear of rejection, the fear of how others see me, and the fear of, am I really loved? The third aspect of this ego is that this ego is only a fraction of myself. Now, because it is a fraction, it's fractious. It's never harmonious. Not only do we produce arguments with others, but we produce arguments with ourselves. I will get out of the bed, and no, I won't get out of the bed. So you have this struggling entity, half in and half out. And I will do this, and no, I won't do it. Or I can, and yet another voice says I can't. And this produces conflict within, and therefore fear within. Another aspect of this being a fraction of yourself is because it is a fraction, it's not complete. It's only partial. And because it's partial, it's biased. Everything is seen only from a point of view. So if I, as an Irishman, watch a football match where Ireland are playing, I only see one half of the game, really. In fact, I come to the conclusion, until we're winning, that the referee is biased, not me. Therefore, this ego is a creature of ignorance, subject to error and misunderstanding. It craves gain, fears loss, and suffers when its desires are frustrated. And fear and who is afraid are not two things but one. Thus we have a fearful person, not a person, and separate things called fears. There is no need to eliminate fears. You simply eliminate the fearful person and all fear goes. Sometimes when we are afraid of dogs, we try to get rid of the dogs. What is required to go 
is the person who's afraid of dogs, not the dogs. And there's a very nice story which uh, illustrates this. Uh, There's a mouse in this story, and he's afraid of cats. So his life is full of fear. And he goes to a magician and he says, can you do anything for me? And the magician is both kind and wise. So he turns the mouse into a cat. So the, the mouse cat now is extremely pleased about this. And he goes off, no longer afraid of mice, of um, cats. In fact, he's rather fond of mice at this stage. <laughs> anyway, he's no longer afraid of um, cats. But he comes back a week later to the magician and he says, I'm afraid of dogs. (laughs) The magician is both kind and wise and patient. So he says to the mouse, okay. And he takes out his spell book and he turns him into a dog. And the mouse dog goes off, happy. But comes back a week later and says, I'm afraid of panthers. And the magician says, all right. And so he changes him into a panther and the Mouse panther goes off, comes back a week later. We're getting to the end of the story now. (laughs) Comes back a week later and said, I'm afraid of hunters. And the magician says, with the heart of a mouse, I can do nothing for you. (laughs) And this is important to appreciate. There's no need to eliminate fears. It's the fearful person who has to go. If in fear, the ego controls you. If fearless, you're in control of yourself. Now, how does fear manifest? How does it arise? And it's produced by what we know, not the unknown. Sometimes people think it's the unknown I'm afraid of. But in fact, it's what we know that fills us with fear. And for example, if I ask you, are you afraid of Muldognites? You don't know. Because you don't know what a Muldognite is. (laughs) Neither do I, I just made it up. (laughs) So, if you don't know what it is, you can't be afraid. But once you have knowledge, a form of knowledge, then you can be full of fear. The past is full of memory, and memory is projected onto the future as if it is knowledge of the future. And this is a projection, and with every projection, you have an expectation of the outcome of that projection. And the response to that expectation is then determined by whether the expectation is accepted or rejected. If the expectation is pleasurable, then it is accepted, and then one fills the heart with hope. If the expectation is painful, then it is rejected, and the heart is filled with fear. Hope and fear are the fruits of expectations, the fruits of memory, the fruits of what you know. Now, the future is unknown. Our memories, which are only shadows of true knowledge, offer no security as to the future. One doesn't have the ability to predict. 
anything can happen. And from the myriad of things that can happen, it's impossible to know which will happen. This so-called knowledge is in fact only fantasy, born of memory. And fantasy greatly exceeds fact, because values are distorted and reason is overturned. And therefore there is limitless potential for creating fear. And to give you an example of this at work, say I had a daughter and she was going out on our first date and I haven't met the young man and he comes to the house on a Harley Davidson 1200cc with hair to his ankles (laughs) and Hell's Angels tattooed on his chest. At this stage I'm starting to pray. But anyway... He's got kind eyes, or so I think. Could be drugs. (laughs) And uh, anyway, I think I hear them saying, as they go off at about 250 miles per hour on this motorbike, that they will be back at 11. So I sit down and try and watch the television. But the mind brings up memories of Hell's Angels films that I've seen and how there was always murder and uh, abduction and all these things. And it gets to 11 o'clock, and the mind begins to absolutely spin. She's been sold into white slavery, beheaded. They had a puncture. Maybe they only had a puncture. Maybe they stopped for a cup of tea somewhere. Maybe the engine overheated. Maybe he overheated. (laughs) How can I know which one is true? And the truth of the matter is I can't. I don't know whether to call out the Air Force, to pray, or just to watch the film that I'm watching. Fear thus arises out of false knowledge. And Socrates has a marvellous passage on this. He says, Fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom, and not real wisdom, being a pretense of knowing the unknown." And no one knows whether death, which men in their fear apprehend to be the greatest evil, may in fact not be the greatest good. Is not this ignorance of a disgraceful sort, the ignorance which is the conceit that man knows what he does not know? Well, let us look at this knowledge that produces fear. And there's a quotation from Spinoza. And he says, There is nothing good or bad, save the mind thinks it so. We think that good and bad are absolutes, that they're realities. And we're afraid of the bad and we welcome the good. But in fact, good and bad are only projections from preconceived ideas arising from memory. You'll notice this with children, that they don't have a knowledge of good and bad. If they find a spider, they'll remove its legs from it. There's nothing bad in that. It's just pulling legs from a spider. You have to teach them it's bad. I remember one of my daughters at a jumble sale. It was my wife's birthday, and there was this 
cup without a handle in it and a crack down the sides and chip at the top of it. But it cost fivepence or something like that. And she had fivepence. So this was bought as the birthday present. It was wrapped beautifully. Now, as far as my daughter was concerned, this was a good present. And of course, it was a good present. But try and get an adult to buy that present. It's impossible because it's a bad present. You notice with young children, if they have a bottle of milk and the bottle falls out of their hand onto the new pink carpet, they sort of watch the milk drip. (laughs) They just watch, sort of watching these nice little drips. And then if they can bend down, they sort of rub it in to make a sort of a, a circle out of it. You think that's bad. So, the second aspect of this knowledge that produces fear is that when the mind takes over an event, it conceives rather than perceives. It remembers and anticipates. It exaggerates, distorts and overlooks And reason and love are displaced by fantasy and feelings. And the mind takes over by using words. It gives names to mere sensations, to mere perceptions. So people observe children running around at considerable speed and for prolonged periods of time, and they come up with the name hyperactive. Now, once you've got a name called hyperactive, you notice there are lots and lots of hyperactive people. It's no longer movement. It's now an illness. And suddenly it's everywhere. You can give birth to an illness with a name. When you name fear, it becomes a concept. Thus, from perception to conception. And perception is only a sensation. So, for example, butterflies in your stomach is a sensation. What's wrong with the sensation of butterflies in your stomach? But once you turn it into a conception, then it is an idea and it has a meaning. And the meaning is that these butterflies mean I'm going to make a dog's dinner of this lecture. Conceiving and perceiving cannot exist together. The sensation is replaced by an idea. I don't know whether you ever had the experience that sometimes you taste the first uh, mouthful of a cup of coffee or the first mouthful of uh, soup and you don't taste the rest. And what happens is that the first mouthful is tasted. And then you name it. You say, this is the best soup I've tasted in a long time. And after that, you're eating a concept. And the next time you wake up out of your little concept is when the bowl is empty. Perception is limited to what is, and therefore it's measured. 
But conception has no limits. Even the impossible and the untrue troubles the mind. So, for example, anorexia, so where the person would look in the mirror and see an overweight body, it is absolutely untrue. The eyes don't see anything other than a thin body, but the mind says it's overweight. The mind can produce a burglar who's not on the roof. And you know how difficult it is to get rid of a burglar who isn't there. A wise man once said that most so-called pain is non-acceptance, which is mental, not physical. When we look at friends and surroundings, we see projections and preconceptions, not what's really there. And if I can give an example from my own youth, when I was about 16, I went through a phase of being embarrassed by my father. So I thought all his jokes were pathetic, and it seemed to me that whenever I invited people into the house, he insisted on telling a few jokes to them. So if he was in the sitting room, we would go to the kitchen. And if he was in the kitchen, we would go to the sitting room. You know, I could hear him coming. We'd be in the kitchen, I could hear him coming. And he'd stick his head around the door and he'd say something, as far as I was concerned, was totally inane. And then he'd say, would you like to hear a joke? And I would cringe. And I would think all my friends were so polite the way they laughed at his jokes. But I remember once asking them, what do you think of my father? They said, they thought he was really nice. They didn't cringe. They weren't embarrassed by him. They saw a really nice man, which is what he was, a really nice man. But because of projections from memory and preconceptions, I couldn't see a very nice man. We do not see the world as it is. And the first thing to realize is that we don't really see that we project our fears and hopes onto things through memory. You know, I was listening to the news and they were reporting on President Clinton's visit to Dundalk and there was a reporter going around. And the first thing he said to everybody, it's a miserable day, isn't it? Now, it was raining. That's all that was happening. Little drops of water coming from above. But he projected misery onto it. There is no misery in rain. They don't make rain like that anymore. They just make miserable people who get wet by rain. (laughs) Now, there are types of fear. And they have their results. And so that you don't take offense, it's not implied that you suffer from each and every one of these, but you may recognize some of them, and the selection is very wide, so you definitely recognize one of them. So remember that there are three ideas, and they're opposites. I am, I know, I do. I am not, I do not know, and I cannot. And all fears can be related to these three, and they're opposites. So I've just taken a a rather large selection. If I am healthy, 
then I'm afraid of disease. If I'm wealthy, then I'm afraid of poverty. If I'm honored, then I'm afraid of humiliation. If I'm beautiful, I'm afraid of old age. If I have social position, then I'm afraid of falling off. If I'm afraid of being wrong, then I become defensive or do not say what I really mean. If I'm afraid of the truth, I do not ask the real questions. If I'm afraid of being thought stupid, then I form opinions on everything, or I become very quiet. If I'm afraid of poverty, then I accumulate unnecessarily. If I'm afraid of hunger, then I overeat. If I'm afraid of failure, then I am cautious or a workaholic. If I'm afraid of rejection, then I'm nice to everybody so that everybody will like me, or else I become a loner. I'm afraid to make decisions, to take responsibility, because I or others might suffer from my decisions. I'm afraid of being different, because then I would be isolated. I'm afraid of being the same, because then I would not be noticed. I'm afraid of really revealing a talent, because then I would really be noticed. I'm afraid of letting go, because then I might lose control. I just might love unconditionally. I'm afraid of the future, so I make it just like the past by trying to control everybody and everything with systems and requirements. I'm afraid that somebody might be able to read my mind and then they would see what I'm really like. I get nervous when a person really listens attentively to what I'm saying. And finally, I'm afraid of death. And the only way to avoid death is to avoid being born. And we've all failed in that. And of course, if I'm idle and I have no fears, then I make them up. And there's a story about this. There was a lady who was very worried. And she went to the man who founded the school, Leon McLaren. And she said to him that she was very, very worried. And he said to her, uh, are you in good health? And she said, yes. He said, are you married? Yes. Do you love your husband? Yes. Does he love you? Yes. Do you have children? Yes. Are they happy? Yes. Is there money in the bank? Yes. So he went down to about 30 things, and the answer was a positive yes to everything. And he said, well, what are you worried about? And she said, think of what might happen. You see, if you have nothing to worry about, you'll make it up, just to worry about it. Now, what are the fruits of fear? What's the effect of fear? And there are three possible states for the human being, and in two of them, fear arises, and in the third, there is no fear. But the first state, and to give it a technical term, is called the tamasic state. And that means a lethargic, indolent, 
without energy state. It's like the stillness of the grave. It's how you feel on a Sunday afternoon falling asleep on the couch. And if you're in that state and fear arises, then you freeze. You take on nothing, you postpone, you procrastinate, and you demand that there be no change because you freeze. If you're in a rajasic state, which is a state of activity and passion, then when fear arises, there's frenetic activity. You worry everything to death and you try to cover all possibilities. So if you have to wake up early in the morning, you have three alarm clocks and a wake-up call as well, just in case. There are multiple locks on the doors. And when you go away on your holidays, you bring about three times the amount of clothes that you could possibly wear, just in case. It just might snow in Tenerife. (laughs) So you squeeze those snow boots in. (laughs) And of course, you repeat absolutely everything because you're afraid that people will forget what you say. And of course, the more you repeat it, the more they forget it. And the third state is a state of stillness and peace and contentment, and in that state, man knows no fear. Well, again, what are the fruits of this fear? The first is that facts are replaced by fantasy. Churchill was asked, after the Second World War, did he have any sleepless nights? And he said they were caused by battles that never happened. We spend a lot of our time trying to deal with things that never happen. And if it's chronic, then we don't live one life, but we live many lives. So some people have to lock the same door more than once. So they will lock the door, they'll go to bed, And the mind says, are you sure you locked it? Did you hear the click? You have to get out of the bed to check it a second time. Sometimes you have to check it a third time. Some people sleep right beside the door. That saves them walking backwards and forwards. (laughs) If you're afraid when you go to an interview, you do about a hundred of them in your mind. So he's this shattered, exhausted, over-rehearsed entity who goes to the real interview and doesn't get the job. If it is an enjoyable thing, we live it many times. So a holiday. Most of us are going on our holidays about six months in advance of the holiday. Some of us anticipate the death of relatives. I've buried my wife about six times. I always wear the same grey suit. The tears are fought back. I even have the speech ready at this stage. I speak about her in a way that I never have told her. It's a wonderful speech. So when it happens, I've got the speech. We suffer from uncertainty even when there is total certainty because of fear. When fear occupies the being, then a need to control arises because the loss of anything can harm me. 
So loved ones are imprisoned by my love so that they'll never go away and leave me. If they talk about Australia, I develop a weak heart and tell them they might miss the funeral. That normally keeps them for a year or two. And because I need to control, all change is resisted. And I dominate and argue over the smallest of issues. The third fruit of fear is that my life becomes a cautious life. Nothing is attempted. And I'm plagued by what if or just imagine. Speech is rehearsed before spoken so that it's never natural. And there is the suppression of desires and spontaneity. And then comes the attempt to eliminate error. In reality, it's the elimination of living. There's nothing wrong with mistakes. The fourth fruit of fear is I don't give all so that I won't lose all. However, the less I give, the more I lose. The Bible says this over and over again. Give and you shall receive. And the story of the talents, where the one servant hid his one talent because he was afraid he might lose it. So it was taken away from him. If you want to retain everything, you have to give everything. The fifth fruit of fear is that there's a constant search for security or reassurance. We look for job security, even if we don't deserve the job. We look for house security and money security. At the emotional level, we crave praise and appreciation. And at the physical level, We try to stay young, healthy, and attractive forever. So they're all the fruits of fear. Well, how are we to deal with fear when it arises? And the general principles are, if it's Thomas, so that you freeze, then the way to unfreeze is to move step by step. And if it's rajas, so there's this frenetic activity, then what's required is to fall still, to reduce the activity. So with one, you initiate activity, and with the other, you reduce the activity. And we should note a simple fact, and this is a quotation from a a wise man called Nisargadatta, and he says, All events are the outcome of innumerable factors of which your efforts are merely one. All events are the outcome of innumerable factors of which your efforts are merely one. Therefore, you're not in control. You're not in control of anything. And one should accept this fact, that you cannot make anything happen. We're all afraid of losing control but it's much better to realize that you're not in control. Then you won't be afraid. Another aspect of dealing with fear is the virtue of endurance. 
You don't turn back and you never give up. And what is endurance? It's the meeting of suffering without loss of bliss or happiness. We can never ensure that life is free from suffering. But our mind is ours and it can be disciplined in serenity. You don't have to back off from fear. There's an example from the East which talks about an elephant. And this elephant walks into the village. And as it comes to the perimeter of the village, the dogs of the village come out to snap at its heels. And they try to make the elephant turn away. But the elephant ignores their barking and snapping and keeps walking. And he walks through the village And then when he gets to the further perimeter of the village, the dogs of the village turn back. They always turn back. So when adversity arises, you just keep going. There is a point beyond which when adversity turns to leave you alone. Turns back just like the dogs in the village. So don't turn back and don't give up. Now, what is the proper use of the mind when fear arises? And the proper use of the mind when fear arises is to externalize the fear. It's like talking about a problem. Don't you notice this? If you have a problem and you talk about it, after you've talked about it, you feel a lot better. What you do when you talk about a problem is you externalize it. You put it in front of you rather than inside of you. And when you externalize fear, it's the first step to liberation. And it's like when poison is internal, then you will die. And when poison is external, then you can deal with it. You can put it on the top shelf. The fear inside becomes fear outside. And how is this achieved? How do you get the fear which is inside to be a fear outside. And it's done with observation. Observation detaches you from the fear. It puts it outside of you, in front of you, and under observation. So always look at fear. We tend to look away from what we're afraid of. But look at the fear. See what is there before all the ideas and preconceptions which are all from the past, see before all those, all these things that you bring to the event. You must let go the conception to go back to the perception, the bare sensation. And to give you an example of this, a lady once came to me in the school and said that she was terribly depressed about her house. She felt her house was a mess, was what she said. It was always a mess. So I asked her to describe this messy house. And she said, well, when I go home, there's a teddy on the, on the floor and there's a cushion out of place and the curtains aren't drawn or something like that. And I said to her, that's not a mess. It's just a teddy on the floor, a cushion out of place, and the curtain's not drawn. Just move back from the conception to the perception. So I asked her to when she went home, 
to just see with her eyes, not to see with her mind, because it was her mind which saw a mess, but just to see with her eyes. And when you see a teddy on the floor and a cushion out of line and the curtains are drawn, it doesn't depress you. Teddies don't have that power. So when you let go of the conception and go back to the perception, now you're no longer in the fear. You're outside the process. You are the perceiver of the fear and the perceiver of fear is not afraid but sees the fear. And in this witnessing, the I, this false I who is afraid, falls away. And fear is reduced to an object under observation. And in this state, reason operates. And with reason comes spontaneous action arising to deal with the situation. It's not related to the past, and there's no fear. And it leaves no residue and does not create memory for the future. And the third aspect of how to deal with fear when it rises is the proper use of the heart. And the proper use of the heart when fear arises is acceptance. Mind and reason turn fear into an object, not an experience. Heart or acceptance or love simply melt the fear. Both disarm the fear. When there is acceptance, one is alert and welcoming all the facts of life. So when there's acceptance, you stand back and you let life come to you, just as you would step aside and hold the door open for a welcome guest. So step aside without turning away. Never turn away from life. Never seek to avoid what is. You always go to meet life. And there's a story about this which illustrates this. There's this city which is surrounded by a very high wall. And outside the wall, at a distance, is a colossal giant who stands in the middle of the only road from this city. So nobody leaves the city because they're afraid of this colossal giant standing there in the middle of the road at a distance. The king of this city eventually offers half his kingdom to anybody who will destroy the giant. Nobody takes up the suggestion until a little boy says he'll do it. And they initially try to dissuade him, but he's absolutely determined he'll take on the giant. So they open the gate to the city about a foot, and they sort of push him out, and then they close the door very quickly again. And they all get up onto the ramparts, and they watch this little boy. So he's now standing there, pinned against the uh, gates, and he can see this great big hairy giant at a distance. And he decides he'll make one step towards the giant. And so he does. And he thinks something happens to the giant. But he's not sure. 
So he makes another step, and then another and another. And then he becomes sure. What's happening is the giant is getting smaller. Every time he makes a step, the giant gets smaller. So now he moves at speed up to the giant, and as he approaches it, the giant is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually, he's up beside this tiny little thing, which is on the ground. So he bends down, picks it up, puts it into the palm of his hand, and he says, who are you? And the ex-giant says, my name is fear. When you move towards fear, it always shrinks. That's why the state of the heart with fear is acceptance. It's a welcoming of life. Acceptance is awareness. And in this awareness, you're free. To really know something, you must accept it. You can only really make a decision when you accept a situation. And remember this. Otherwise, you just react to it. And again, you'll notice this, that you have to face a situation to make a true decision. Otherwise, you just avoid it or react to it. And I've given this example before. I've gone to the airport on more than one occasion without my passport. And on one occasion, I went with my new passport, which didn't have the American visa on it, the permanent or the long-term American visa on it. And I just assumed that there was no need to bring my old passport. The lady, Julie, checked me in, weighed my baggage, and then asked me for the passport. And I handed my brand-new passport, which I looked excellent. And she looked at this, and she said, there's no American visa in it. And I told her it was in the old passport. And she said, well, that's not good enough. So I proceeded to give out to her about the Department of Foreign Affairs. And she listened patiently to me while I gave out about them. I tried to explain to her that it was absolutely essential that I got on that plane. She didn't obviously understand how necessary it was for me to get on this plane. There were other people in New York waiting for me. Imagine that. (laughs) So... so, Uh, So I emphasized to her how essential it was that I got onto this plane. She was an exceptionally patient lady, and so she looked at me with immense pity and compassion, and she said, look, I can let you on the plane, but they won't let you off. (laughs) And finally I woke up to the fact, I'm not getting on this plane. There was acceptance that I wasn't getting on the plane. Now, up to that moment, I had been an idiot, an absolute idiot. But with acceptance of the fact that I wasn't getting on the plane, then intelligence began to operate. I made a phone call to the people, said, look, we have to meet for dinner as opposed to lunch, and managed to get a flight via London and got the passport sent out to me. So it all worked out fine. So you can only really make a decision when you accept the situation. And the decision that results is an action, not a reaction. In the moment of acceptance, the fuel is no longer added and the fire of fear naturally goes out. 
Resistance is the fuel. When you move with the events of life, then there's no reaction, no tension, and no fear. Because these only arise with the controlling ego. And in acceptance, the ego does not operate. Love operates. Now to bring this to an end, we have discussed fear, how it arises, its fruits, and how to deal with it. But the title to the lecture goes way beyond this. It says that the man who knows himself knows no fear. So how does one totally eliminate fear? And the answer is by coming to know who I am in truth. If I am my body, then I am subject to death. If I am my mind or heart, then I am subject to gain and loss. And if this be true, the best I can hope for is the minimization of fear. But if I'm spirit, will there be any fear? What can the eternal, ever-shining, independent, self-reliant spirit, full of consciousness, knowledge and bliss, ever be afraid of? Here's a reading from the, the Taittiriya Upanishad. In the beginning, all this was but the unmanifested self. From that emerged the manifested. That self created itself by itself. Therefore it is called the self-creator. That which is known as the self-creator is verily the source of joy. For one becomes happy by coming in contact with that source of joy. Who indeed will inhale and who will exhale if this bliss be not there in the supreme space within the heart? This one indeed enlivens people. For whenever an aspirant gets fearlessly established in this unperceivable, bodiless, inexpressible and unsupporting self, he reaches the state of fearlessness. For whenever an aspirant creates the slightest difference in it, he is smitten with fear. Nevertheless, that very self is a terror to the so-called learned man who lacks the unitive outlook. The enlightened man is not afraid of anything after realizing that bliss of self, failing to reach which words turn back along with the mind. Him indeed this remorse does not afflict. Why did I not perform good deeds? And why did I perform bad deeds? He who is thus enlightened delights in the self with which these two are identical. For it is he indeed who knows thus that can realize the self which these two really are. This is the secret teaching this is the Upanishad. You can come to know who you are in truth by studying the words of the wise and by meditation. 
So come to know who you are in truth and let your life be one which is free of fear. That is your possibility and that's your opportunity. Thank you very much. Well, would we like to begin? Don't be afraid to ask your questions. Thanks very much for the lecture. It's very enjoyable. Do you think having a particular fear maybe is a sign that you should do that thing? Say um, you're afraid to go to someone to ask them for a job or something like that, that maybe that's a sign that you should actually do it. Like generally people would assume that if you have a fear, maybe you should avoid it, you know. But should, maybe it's a sign that you should actually do it. Yes. I don't think you could make that an absolute. So let's say if I'm afraid of lion taming, does that mean I'm obliged to train a few lions? No, it doesn't. But if something is limiting, if it deprives you of a full life, well then one should go and meet it. So, yes, let's say one is afraid of talking to strangers. Well, then you should practice. Try talking to your wife. That normally helps. <laughs> so it is very good. You can be gentle with yourself. You can do it either way. You can sort of dive in the deep end, or you can just do it step by step. One lady in the school is now dead. And what she said was, to be ugly at 16 is unfortunate. At 60, it's unforgivable. So to have fears at a certain stage of your life is understandable. But to die with fears is unforgivable. When man applies his entire being to anything, he can conquer anything. If you can imagine diffuse light, if you really diffuse light, it lets off a nice glow and you might feel a certain warmth. If you bring that light together to a pinpoint, then it becomes a laser beam and it will cut through metal. So when you feel that something is bigger than you, then apply all of you to it. And suddenly it becomes smaller than you. And when it's smaller than you, you're no longer afraid of it. So you're absolutely right. You never avoid that which you are afraid of. The standard phrase is you step over fear. Fear is always in front of you. You step over it. So now behind you. And you find that if you do this, if you repeat it, the fear goes. Because the knowledge of, say, successful experience accumulates. And suddenly you can't justify the fear. So if I take, for example, the, the first time that I was asked to give a public talk, I prayed just like Jesus. I asked that this hour might pass. <laughs> and it didn't pass. And it was just horrendous experience. And for years there was always colonies of butterflies and I wouldn't be able to eat. And I'd laugh hysterically at my own jokes prior to the talk. 
and all of that. And then eventually got to the point where you couldn't justify the fear. There wasn't enough experience of disaster to be able to maintain the fear of disaster. So then it just falls away. But that is rather a crude way. That is trying to deal with something external. The real thing is to change the image of yourself. So if you have a small view of yourself, then everything will appear big to you. If you have a big view of yourself, then everything will appear small to you. The real way to overcome fear is to change the view of yourself and ultimately to discover who you are. And then there's nothing to be afraid of. But at a very ordinary practical level, yes, you would say to somebody, whatever you're afraid of, tackle or step over it or meet it. Is that all right? Thank you very much. Yes, anything else? You spoke in the beginning of the talk about uh, naming things and how this can cause problems like hyperactive children. I'm just a bit confused because I was under the assumption that naming things could be useful in order to overcome them. Give me an example. Well, hyperactive children, uh, you know, if your child truly is hyperactive, there's some problem with the child. If you don't name it, then you can't address it or can't deal with it. Yes, at that level it is useful. But the fact of the matter is that names also separate and isolate. So you say he's rich and he's poor, and she's good-looking and she's not so good-looking, and that one is intelligent and that one is stupid. That means everybody's different. If you want to use names, why not use real names, like a human being? Why not have that name when you see someone? You know, children don't have names for things. They don't have names for rich man, poor man, white man, black man. They just have name man or woman. So they see no difference. And that's why children will ask you anything. They'll say, how come you've got funny colored skin? Or why is your nose so long? Or how come you never get out of that chair with wheels on it? Because they've no names. But once you say, he's a cripple, then they think, you don't ask cripples why they're in uh, chairs with wheels on them. So you've got to be careful about names. Names are very good for communicating. They're not very good for isolating. So there's a difference. And we often use names to isolate but there's nothing wrong per se of using the name, is there? No, but depends what you use it for. And sometimes you can put a name on someone. Do you ever do that to a school friend? You put a name on them, and then you meet them 40 years later, and it's the same name, Spotty or something like that. <laughs> Hairy, and now he's completely bald or something. <laughs> So, so you've got to be very careful about names. Very, very careful. But there are true names which unify, that reveal the essence, and then there are names which differentiate and isolate. They don't highlight, 
they isolate. But in the process of removing fear, you were saying you need to externalize it. Yes. Isn't that process of externalizing it, naming it? Yes. But as I said, it depends why you name it. For example, when a man, and we make it a man, and an ignorant man, he says, that's a woman driver. He's not externalizing it. That's not the emotion that's running through his heart. It's a criticism. It's an isolation. It's a statement of superiority and inferiority. So that sort of naming. So, that's the... Okay, yeah. thank you. Yes. You were saying that fearing, only fear something you know. Yes. But surely, I mean, as well, the things that are unknown that are probably the most, most fearful things, like... The first one is like the, the turning off the, the light, the darkness. And you, as soon as you turn on the light, the fear is gone. And then even thinking more in a more kind of universal way. I mean, I think I was thinking back, for example, just from the Bible and stuff. In the Old Testament, I think Moses turns to, to God and he says, who will, they, who will I say who you are? And he says, I am who I am. And it's kind of the unknown. And then later on, the, the Old Testament says, rather fear God. And it's this unknown. And I just want to know how... Do you overcome that sort of fear? I think without getting too technical about it, God didn't say, tell them you don't know who sent you. He said, tell them I am sent you. He told his name. He actually gave his real name. But, I mean, it's still the unknown, isn't it? I mean, well, really, you use the words I am. Do you know what you mean when you say I am? Anybody confused when they say I am? He didn't use big words. He didn't say, tell them Muldognite sent you. <laughs> he used words that were absolutely known to every human being. No human being exists without the words, I am. Everybody, when they refer to themselves, say, I am. So how do you know that God wasn't saying that I am the self of all? So it wasn't a mystery. But if I said to you, and it's only a humor thing, if I said, okay, well, tell me something you don't know anything about that you're afraid of. You can't do it. You might have to go a blank and then you can't tell me about it. You have to know something about it. Now, what you do is you add to it. People aren't afraid of the dark at all. They're afraid of what they add to the dark. There's nothing wrong with darkness. But it's what might happen when it's dark. That's frightening. So we just add to it. Isn't it? It's one of their senses is down. I mean, yeah. it's what's unknown there. It's like well, do you, do you find sleep frightening? Do you think, oh my God, I'm going to sleep. This is going to be terrible. But, but everything's down there. You're, you're not Absolutely. Aware. It's all down. So it's not five times as frightening when it's dark. But you have one down. That's when the fear comes. <laughs> <in. laughs> Well, if one down makes you afraid, I think well, you could say that two would make you more afraid and three would make you f more afraid. Well, it's just that sleep is like, almost like death. You're not aware. So but how come, how come we're afraid of death, which is all down, and sleep we're not afraid of? Everybody says, this is going to be good. I'm looking forward to this. It's because when you're, when you're, when you're asleep, you're not aware of what's going on around you. When you're death, you're not, you're not aware of what's going on around you. When you're really? awake... You, you've, you've come back to tell us this, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no. but when, when you're awake you're, you're thinking of death because death is the unknown 
It's the same as oh, the no, darkness. No, no. If death was unknown, you wouldn't know whether to be afraid of it or not. You imagine what death is. How do you know, as uh, I've said the story before, but I had a, a friend who was very depressed, depressive type of guy who became a comedian, which is it's an excellent quality if you want to become a comedian. His view on life was that hell was another go on earth. <laughs> so how do you know death isn't the most welcoming thing to actually throw off this body and be totally liberated? You see, but what you do is you imagine that you know what death is. You think you know what it is, but you don't. Now, it's that false knowledge which causes the fear. People think all sorts of things are bad. You don't know what's bad. We're all the time trying to judge events at a particular point in time and say, that's bad. I would be afraid if that happened. But you can't, because you don't know what it leads to. I know men who've inherited vast wealth and it's destroyed them. You might think it would be good if you inherited vast wealth, but it could destroy you, and poverty could save you. So we don't know. We don't know the future. We don't know the outcomes. But what we do is we take the past and we project outcomes. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm just going back to what the first questioner asked you about fear. And you answered him like to step over the fear and to get a bigger picture of yourself. But would you have anything to say, say, to a young girl, you know, who wouldn't have any experience of successes and who's consumed with fear? If I say something like that to her, it won't really be enough. Is there anything more practical? Well, I just say what I do with my son. It's the same thing. Whereas a son or a daughter makes no difference. Sometimes if he expresses a fear, I ask him, is he a man or a mouse? And then I tell him to stop squeaking. You call out the human being. Have you ever been afraid of something and somebody says, well, are you a mother or are you not? Or are you a husband or are you not? Or are you a wife or are you not? Well, this young lady is a woman. She's not a little fearful thing. She's a woman with some fear in it. And that's what she needs to realize, first of all, who she is. And you can say it to her. You can say to her, let's say she's blessed with an able body, if she has an able body. She has the capacity to love. I'm sure she has experienced love in the family. And she has the capacity to reason and to know. We say with those three gifts, there's nothing to be afraid of. So you appeal to the greatness within them. And this is a time when you have to use names. Sometimes you say, well, are you a coward? Is that what you are? Nobody will say yes. If you ever ask human beings, well, are you an idiot? Is that what you're telling me? You're an idiot. People say, oh, no, no, no. And they try and give an excuse for their stupidity. But they won't admit it. So it's very good in that situation to call on a big name.
And let's say that doesn't work. Well, then you can appeal to her past experience. Let's say it was something physical, like she was afraid of skiing or horse riding or something like that. And you say to her, well, you came into this world without the ability to walk. You've mastered that. That's much more difficult than horse riding. And you never gave up, even though you banged your head against a thousand tables and chairs. And you say that same person still exists now. And your daughter at one stage didn't even know the alphabet. So all this shows this incredible capacity. Come into this world without control over the body at all and to master this body so that it does what you ask it to do. And there was no speech and no understanding of number. And yet she's mastered all of this. And there's still plenty more space for more love in our heart or more reason in our mind. And it's very important that you believe that when you say it to her. And she'll hear your confidence in her. But that's how you do it. Well, it's, it's actually not my daughter. And I'm sure that the medical profession and a lot of other people would have said things like that to her. And they don't seem to have helped. Yeah. I'm visiting her and I'm trying to help her if I can. Well, you, you may have to take a, a particular aspect then where there is a lot of fear, and then you have to accompany her. Do you know that when when you're teaching your child to swim and say the child is afraid, then you have to get into the water with them? There's nothing better than living example. So you may have to stand in the water with them. So whatever this girl's fear is, or sorry, she's, she's a million fears, you take one of them, you take the smallest one, and you accompany her in meeting that fear. You may have a person, for a lot of reasons, just keeps turning inwards and keeps looking at the fear. And your job then is to make her turn outwards. Not to listen to the voice in the head, but to face what's in front of her. It's like you say somebody's afraid of a mouse. That's only a concept. You never see a mouse with a machine gun or anything like that. It's just a concept that makes you full of fear. But if you ask somebody, well, describe the mouse. All they can say is this tiny little grey thing with frightened eyes. Because they are now looking outwards rather than looking within themselves where the fear is. Does that make sense? Well, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure whether it does or not, but... Well, once you turn your attention outwards, you can't be afraid. Fear arises when you go into this inner world full of false knowledge and false feelings. Once you turn outwards, it doesn't arise. You know, when people are afraid of, say, giving a a talk, what happens is they go into themselves and they imagine a terrible talk. And what people universally discover is the minute they begin to speak, the fear goes. Because when you're speaking, you haven't got time to be looking inside your head. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense, yeah. Well, it's in that sense. Mm. So what the girl, this young lady needs to do is to engage. It's for the mind and heart to be engaged outwards. Because what you'll find is every time she's afraid, 
she disconnects and goes in on herself. So your job is to get her to come out and stay out. Now, how you do that is depending on the particular circumstance. That's the challenge, is to get the mind out, or the mind and heart out. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, good evening. Thank you, Mr. Hall. Yes, uh, <clears throat> it seemed like what you were talking about just now was like phobia, and that I would see as something different from fear in the normal sense. Uh, what, what springs to mind is the scripture that says, free from desire, fear, and anger. This is the steady state mm. of the self. Now, desire we all have. You know, which one of us are without a desire? time to time. So it seems that we are perpetually kind of threatened with fear. And it seems to me that, you know, you, you have to either realize who the self is or you have to believe that God is looking after everything and accept everything that happens. <coughs> now, it seems to me that that isn't something you can just learn in a book, but is a lifetime's work. You have to have continuously work at it. And that we always have to be examining the fear. Or, well, the, the, the desires, really. No, absolutely. That's why at the very end of the talk it said that if you don't know who you are, the very best that you can achieve is the minimization of fear. You bring it under control, that it doesn't disturb you too much. But if you want to be free from fear, then you have to come to know who you are. And when you come to know who you are, then you'll discover that there is no other and there is no fear. But otherwise, as I said, it's just hard work minimizing. It's it's better than being full of fear, but it can't be eliminated without the knowledge of who I am. So you're right. Yes, indeed. Uh, Thanks very much. No problem. This gentleman here. Thanks, Shane. I just want to check with you. For instance, in life, if you go for something very big in your life, Uh, and somebody else has power over that and it takes all your energy to go and get it and then they squash you and then you come back and you spend a lot of time licking your wounds but a huge fear builds up to go back for it again if that same person is involved how would you suggest to look at that? Yes, well, once there is delight in gain then there will be fear of loss. They're the two sides of the one coin. So let's say you buy a car, you save up a lot of money, and you buy yourself that red Ferrari or whatever it is that you've always craved for. Well, you'll be very afraid of where you park it. And when you hear car alarms go off, you'll swear that that's your car alarm going off. So you'll always be in fear of it being taken away from you. Now, there is another way And that is simply to enjoy without delight in gain and fear of loss. Of course the human being should have ideals. But they should not be consumed by success and failure. And I've used this analogy before, but if you take the average adult and they're doing the washing up and the washing up is finished then they sort of breathe a sigh of satisfaction. Does that make sense? They're now happy it's over with. Whereas when you look at a very young child doing the washing up, it's happy doing it. 
It doesn't wait until it has succeeded in completing the job before it's happy. And a great sportsman or great sportswoman enjoys sport, doesn't enjoy winning and hates losing, but enjoys sport. So if you wish to really go for it, your attention has to be here. If you asked, uh, say Tiger Woods, if say we acknowledge that he is a great golfer, watch where his attention is. His attention is not in the clubhouse where the money is. His attention is on the ball. Does that make sense? And he's not concerned about success or failure as he's addressing the ball. He's only concerned about hitting the ball. That's all. And so what you get is a a 100% human being poured down a drive shaft. And that's why that ball goes 400 yards. But for you, if I may be so bold as to say, you're concerned about whether you've put on weight or not and are people noticing as you're driving off. You can see the woods to the right and the lake to the left. (laughs) Okay, You're thinking of that money in the clubhouse. So there's about 5% of you actually playing golf. And that 5% always sends the ball into the woods. (laughs) Thank you, Shane. If I was you, I'd donate your clubs to a charity. (laughs) That's the key. We are always splitting our attention between the activity and the outcome. And the key to life is to give 100% of your attention to the activity. The outcome happens in the fullness of time. It takes place. I always think it's very nice you watch, uh, again, a rugby player taking a conversion or a penalty kick. You watch the kick takes place and the head comes up afterwards. Only then does he see where the ball went. If you watch that, the head always comes up afterwards. Same with a golfer, in fact. So when the attention is on the activity, there is no concern with gain or loss. Is that right? Thank you for your talk, Mr. Mulholland. I'd just like to refer to uh, your own problem of overcoming your fear of public speaking, and you described it as a crude way. And then you said, like, a better way was to find out who you were. But uh, I'm thinking that could take a long time as well. I could just give a small example of a similar situation of speaking in public, and I was terrified. And I asked someone's advice on it, and they told me, very practically, they said, hand it over to a higher power, and when you begin to speak, listen to your voice. And it worked beautifully. Yeah, well, that's excellent. In my case, it took years. <laughs> I only tried it twice, once. It may not happen again. Certainly, technique is very helpful. But in the end, truth alone conquers. Again, I've told this story before, but once when I was tutoring in the school... I had this pale grey suit. My hair was dark in those days, so it provided a good contrast. So this pale grey suit, and I was in a a hotel, and somebody spilt some tea on the leg, uh, one of the legs of this grey suit, pale grey suit. So it left a very marked stain, about six inches in diameter. And I thought, 
my God, you know, I'm tutoring tonight. I can't go in with this great big stain on my grey suit. And I tried to ring home. My wife wasn't there, so I gave out for the fact that she doesn't wait there all the time just in case I've got a stain on my suit. I thought about driving out there, but there wasn't enough time to do this. And so I thought, okay, I'll go to the school and I'll see if I can get rid of the stain. So I started to... Don't ever do this with a pale grey suit, by the way. So I applied water and all sorts of things to the stain, which now became sort of an 18-inch diameter, (laughs) (laughs) but slightly paler stain. (laughs) So I now look like a man who suffered from incontinence, right? (laughs) So I thought, God, I'll have to get a substitute... I can't stand there or sit there for two hours with this ginormous stain on this thing. And in the end, I had to ask myself, are you a man that can only tutor with a clean suit, or are you a man? What are you? And it became absolutely obvious that a stain on a suit is a stain on a suit. So I, everybody stared at my left leg for two hours, and, <laughs> and, and I gave the class. But it didn't bother at all. If you refer to the truth about yourself, you can transcend everything. And again, I've told this story before, but uh, I was away on holidays in France. It was a long holiday, which gives you a long time to get depressed. So I got depressed. What I was depressed about was I was unsure where next year's income was going to come from. This was now June. So as an accountant, I always project three years ahead. (laughs) So... So I was worried about where the income was going to come from next year. And I had a £30,000 overdraft at that stage, which, as far as I'm concerned, had at least two noughts too many uh, for my comfort. So I was afraid. I was actually full of fear. And I could speculate about either impending disaster or vast quantities of wealth coming my way, but I couldn't be sure about either. So in the end, I took up a, a philosophy book and started to read it. And the book is called The Supreme Yoga. And in this book, it tells the story of this lady called Leela. And uh, Leela had absolutely loved her husband, who died. And she was heartbroken about this. So she prayed to the god of death. I can't remember if she prayed that she might join him, or that they would be united in the future. Anyway, there were sincere prayers, so the god of death came to her. And he said to her, "Uh, Leela, you will marry this man again. And in fact, you've already been married to him six times in previous embodiments. And once you lost all your children in a plague, and another time you were an empress, and another time you were woodcutters who had a simple life in the forest. See, the god of death said to her, you're eternal. And what's losing one husband when you're eternal type of thing? So this struck me. I thought, you know, if I am eternal, if that is absolutely true, What is a £30,000 overdraft? It's just nothing. So I enjoy the rest of the holiday. (laughs) If you can refer to the truth about yourself, if you can discover it and experience it, everything comes into its true perspective. Have you ever seen a child distraught because it lost a pound coin? Maybe some of you become distraught when you lose a pound coin. <laughs> but you know what it's like. 
as if your whole life has come to an end. But that's only because of lack of perspective. On the basis that you are eternal, what's your problem? So, this lady wanted to... Uh, I was just interested in what you were saying about adversity and, you know, that the elephant and the dogs, and if you keep walking towards it, that it turns in the end. Yes. And I'm just, I suppose, looking at life where some people seem to have it hard from beginning to end and others seem to have a charmed existence. So I'm just thinking as you're speaking there, was it, are, is one supposed to look at more than one lifetime or is there some more justice in this one? Uh, no, no. It doesn't mean that all lives are equally pleasant. I mean, your eyes and ears will tell you that. But adversity doesn't have to be negative. It's just adversity. And again, there's a famous story told about a lady called Kunti. And she was a famous mother in India. And she was a devotee of Krishna. Krishna knew he was going to die. He told Kunti, because of her devotion to him, she could have a boon, she could have a wish. And so she said to Krishna, grant me adversity. Even Krishna was confused about this. And he asked her, well, why do you wish for adversity? And she said, because I only thought of you in adversity. The marvelous thing about adversity is that it makes you seek for something greater. It makes you seek for an explanation. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Thank you. When I was a young man, a girlfriend of mine died, and that upset me terribly. And I searched my entire life, as I understood it, for something that I had done to suffer that. And I couldn't find it. I'd robbed a few apples in my time, but nothing that was uh, worthy of this grief. So I said, there must be another answer. There must be a bigger answer which can explain this to me. So I don't regret that now, because it made me look. And do you still look for adversity? I don't go out in the morning and say, yippee, let's hope there's some great adversity today. But it's not a matter of being biased and saying adversity is the only good thing in life. <laughs> it's a matter of that when good things happen to you, you make use of them. When adversity happens to you, you make use of it as well. You can make use of all of life. So this is this point about welcoming. You welcome all of life. All of life has a lesson to teach. And you can make use of that lesson. So that's the possibility. Thank you. Yes, anybody else? At the back there, on the right. Mr. Mulhall, thank you very much for your talk tonight. It was very interesting. And lots of different things really were very clear. But I would just like to ask a personal question. I have a fear, and it's been with me for the last 25 years. And my friend here was laughing at me, asking you this. But I've got a fear of water. And I, can, water. and I cannot swim. Yes. I have been trying to learn. Nearly killed a few instructors <laughs> in the process, but I cannot get over this fear. I can rationalize. I can read books on how to swim. But once I get there and get into the water, that's it. So how do you overcome something like that on a practical sense? Well, the first thing is you have to be a little bit more 
brutally honest with yourself. It is not true that you can't get over it. What is true is that you won't get over it. You won't let it go. You're unwilling to let go. Even so, over the years, I have gone in, I've got lessons, yes. everything else. Yes, but it's the equivalent. Do you remember that film, Runaway Bride? Yes. Yeah, well, you're the equivalent of the runaway <laughs> swimmer. <laughs> it only counts when you say, I do. Walking down the aisle doesn't count. Now, what would be helpful is this, is that you find somebody that you can say the words to, I trust you. You find somebody that you can say those words to, I trust you. And then hand yourself over to them, to their care, as regards swimming. Mr. Mulhall, I did, and they nearly drowned me, (laughs) even though I did trust them. No, well, as I said, find somebody. You can find somebody. We do it all the time. We find pilots, and we're happy to get into their aeroplanes. We find surgeons, and then we allow them to stick knives in us when we're not even looking. (laughs) So if you can allow somebody to stick a knife in you when you're not even looking, and to make all sorts of comments like, it looks weird from where I am, and... uh, all of that, then why can't you let somebody teach you to swim? So, that's what you need to do. You need to find somebody that you can say, I trust you. And then you need to hand yourself over unconditionally, just like in a wedding, for better, for worse, richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. So, you simply hand yourself over. So what happens is you suspend all free will for the duration so if they say stand on one leg you stand on one leg and if you can't find somebody that you actually will hand yourself over to well then wait until you do find somebody but that's what it will take you will if you look openly you will find someone but you must hand yourself over unconditionally it's like with a driving lesson you have to let the driving instructor instruct you it isn't a sort of a bargaining we just do three point turns today you have to let the instructor instruct you so what it is is a fear of simply handing over of entrusting yourself well that's it really well I hope it will happen in this lifetime it will if you want to there's no count so you can come to the next lecture in Togs and we'll. <laughs> so I know that you've succeeded. Yes. Mulhall, uh, would you have an opinion as to whether this is a, a more fearful or a less fearful world? What way we're going? Is there more fear in the creation? Is it increasing or decreasing? Would you have an opinion on that? Well, as an opinion, I would say there's more fear. 
more and more fair. If a man identifies himself with his spirit or his essence, he knows no fear. The more gross his identifications become, the more fearful he is. So if he identifies with the body, then he becomes extremely fearful because death is always staring at him. He can't avoid it for very long or avoid thinking about it for very long. And so the question you have to ask yourself, is man more preoccupied with the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain? If he is, then he's more identified with his body. And if he's more identified with his body, then he will be subject to greater and greater fear. So the progression is from identification with the body to identification with the mind to identification with the heart to identification with the self or spirit. And as this happens, fear lessens. But there's no such thing as a person identified with the body who's not subject to lots and lots of fear. Make this the last question. The best one. Well, there's only a small question. <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> Does the human species not need a certain amount of fear to survive? So therefore, in that sense, fear is a good thing. Where there's no knowledge true knowledge, then fear is helpful because it controls or restricts. But where there is knowledge, then there's no need of fear. So I think, doesn't it say in the Bible that fear is the beginning of wisdom or fear of the Lord is the... I think it says it's the beginning of wisdom, but it's only the beginning. For example, let's say you had a crude understanding of religion and you're a God believer but it's a crude understanding then your fear of being punished for wrongdoing will keep you on the right track so that's helpful that's helpful if that's all you have but when there is true knowledge or true understanding then fear is unnecessary so the way you could look on it if you've got a broken leg a crutch is very helpful When your leg is mended, a crutch is a hindrance to walking. It's time for the crutch to go. When you do not have true understanding, then fear can be helpful in restraining your behavior. So, for example, if I said to you, does the fear of being caught speeding actually restrict the speed at which you drive at? And if you're an honest man, you'll say, yes. So there... Because of fear of being caught, you drive in a more honorable way, let's say. But if you loved your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't need fear of being caught to drive properly. Does that make sense? But I'm thinking more of if there's a fish's lion in front of you, roaring tiger or a lion. Yes. I mean, and you're, you're afraid of that, so you go away to protect yourself. Yes, and then he eats you from behind. Yeah, or if he catches you, yeah. So th- that's a fear. Yes. Uh, but I suppose if a child maybe saw a lion for the first time, I wouldn't be afraid of it. What, what do you think a lion tamer would say to you, who actually understands lions? Would he say, now look, when you come across the lion and you're afraid of it, run. Do you think he'd say that to you? No, he'd say, it smells your fear. 
Why not take the advice of a lion tamer? You see, when there's no understanding, then there's fear. A lion tamer understands lions and is not afraid of them. It's said of St. Francis of Assisi that he loved all creatures. So he wasn't afraid of them and they weren't afraid of him. How do you know that the lion doesn't eat you because he's afraid of you? You've caused him to be afraid of you. There's a lovely story, just to to end with this, there's a lovely story about uh, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Somebody asked him a question, what would you do if somebody came running at you with a knife to kill you? And he said, I would change his desire. That's a lot better than running, getting stabbed in the back. (laughs) You see, when you have understanding, then you do not know what you can do. All things are possible. And again, I know I said I would finish, but I'm a liar, so I'm going to finish with this. There was a lady leader of the school in New York for a long time. Joy Dillingham was her name. You know, she's not a, a tall lady or particularly strongly built lady. She might be five foot two and about eight stone. So she's a very slim, light little lady. And the school in New York, one of its buildings was in a very bad area. Perfect place to pick up philosophy students. (laughs) (laughs) So Joy Dillingham, anyway, was the leader of the school, so she was at the building frequently. And one night, she leaves late from the building. And this gang attack her. So they grab her, push her into an alley and up against a wall. And she says to them, gentlemen, what do you want with me? And they became her protectors. They used to escort her to the school building and away from it. Because, you see, she wasn't afraid of them. She called them gentlemen. And believe it, inside every gang member, there is a gentleman. And you can call it out. You can produce a gentleman. Now that's understanding. And then there's no need for fear. You can try it the next time you're about to be mugged. (laughs) Thank you very much.